Turn with me to the gospel, the gospel according to John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We are in chapter 12. One gospel, his name is Jesus, four separate accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. John chapter 12, verse 34 is where we will pick up, okay? If you have a Bible, great. If you don't, there's some in the back. If you don't own one, please take one. Uh, It's uh, our gift to you. John chapter 12, verse 34 is where we'll pick up from where we left off. And the crowd answered, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? That Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going, but while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he had heard from us, and and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn and I will heal them. Isaiah said these things, verse 41, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Verse 50. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. May God God grant a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. Keep your Bibles open right there. That's where we'll be at this morning. Children, and you're here, you are dismissed for Children's Church. While we study the gospel and here, they will do so in their prospective classrooms. May God bless the teachers too as they serve together. We're glad you're here at 11 o'clock service. We had a service at 9 o'clock trying to make room because we are a church that believes that at the core of who we are there's a sentness, there's a mission that we are on because Jesus is on a mission to seek and save the lost. So we want to love as many people as possible, demonstrating God's love and then declaring with generosity and kindness the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're all about. And that's what the gospel according to John is all about. Now, this section in this beautiful eyewitness account written by John the Apostle, this section, chapter 12, um, we have two things going on that's important, two transactional uh, sections that are important. The first one you'll find in chapter 12 is verse 23, the hour has come. That's a, that's, a, that's a signal for us. 
The second one that's important in this chapter is the closing or the, the public ministry closing of Jesus. Jesus uh, is going to be snuffed out. The light is going to be snuffed out. He is going to the cross and we are days before the public ministry of Jesus, excuse me, days before the cross. And here we see the public work of Jesus, the ministry, the public ministry of Jesus coming to a close. During our study through the book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we have seen several reoccurring themes. But here in chapter 12, we come back really to the main theme of the book. We know what the main theme of the book, we know what the purpose of the book is all about because John told us. You should know this if you've been studying. If not, mark it down. Chapter 21, verse 30. At the end of the book, John writes, Jesus did a lot of signs, many signs, in the presence of his disciples. They're not in this book, but what is written in this book, I have written, so that you may believe, so that you may trust, that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God, the Son of God, the Son of the same nature of God. And that by believing, trusting, yielding, loving him, you may have life in his name. That's the point of the book. And John carefully selected seven signs to answer the question, who is Jesus? How can we be sure? How do we know for certain that he is who he claims to be? The question is important, very important, of eternal importance. And that's why we come to the closing of the public ministry of Jesus and we see this question again. And, and I want to share with you this morning, first and foremost, that this text before us is weighty. This passage before us is serious. This passage before us is urgent. It's God's last appeal to his people in that day to believe and trust in the Son and be removed or, be, uh, or come under the judgment of God. Time has run out. Now, I'm not suggesting your time's run out. That's between you and the Lord. There comes a time, though, where God's time has run out. Each one of us will stand before a holy God and give an account for our life. Each one of us, including me, especially me, chief of all sinners, will not be able to stand alone, alone before a holy God. That's why Paul reminds the church of Rome, and he says, we've been justified by faith. We've been made right with God by faith. We have been, made, uh, we have been reconciled to God by faith. And we have peace now with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we obtained access by the faith in Christ into the grace in which we now stand and we rejoice. We rejoice in the hope, the hope, not the uncertain hope, but the certain hope of the glory of God. This is serious. The context of John 12 in our passage this morning, we're days away from Good Friday. The Lord of glory and the King of kings will be crucified. And just a few days before this text, he was in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus having dinner together in Bethany, about two miles away from Jerusalem. It was Lazarus who was raised from the dead after four days lying in a cold tomb. It was the final sign in John's book, other than Jesus himself. There was a large crowd, it was Passover season, and, and the crowd, maybe a million Jews and people have descended upon Jerusalem, heard that Jesus is having lunch with the once dead Lazarus, so they go out to check out what's going on, and they decide at that moment they are to kill Lazarus again, because he's a testimony, a signed testimony of the goodness and greatness of Christ. 
We learn in chapter 11 that they already had decided the Sanhedrin, the power brokers of Israel, had already decided to put Jesus to death earlier, chapter 11. After that lunch with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus comes the triumphal entry. Jesus riding on a donkey, coming down the hill and into Jerusalem. Not a war horse, what they expected, but a donkey. And they took out branches and they met him there and they, and they cried out, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Mark that in your Bible. Even the King of Israel, they said. Looking for a nationalistic king. They, they were looking for someone to reign and rule and conquer enemies, particularly Rome in that day. Understandably, the Jewish people had prophets upon prophets. And, and, and the scriptures upon the scriptures of the Old Testament spoke about the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, the, the reign and rule of God, the kingdom of God coming, the shalom of God once again on the earth. That's what they waited for. That's, that's what they were hoping for. And, and the Passover season that's happening now is, is a time of high expectation for they remember the deliverance of Moses. So they're excited. They're, they're expecting. They're anticipating the coming of the kingdom, the coming of the king. You can see that in the triumphal entry. And then we get to chapter 12, verse 19. We read this revealing and rather uh, ironic statement. The Pharisees said to one another, chapter 12, verse 19, you see that they are going out, uh, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And John tells us that, that in a way, it's just to remind us that Jesus dies for the sins of the world. In fact, 20 and 21 of chapter 12, it says Greeks showed up looking for Jesus. It was the worldwide mission of Jesus. The world has gone after him. The Greeks are looking for him. That triggered the first transaction, transaction excuse me, transition. The hour has come, Jesus says. Look with me in chapter 12, verse 23. The world is going after him. The Greeks are looking for him. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come. We've seen it over and over. The hour is not yet. The hour is not yet. Jesus, we, we ran out of wine, Mary tells him in chapter 2. What, what do you want with me? My hour has not come. Jesus escapes the, 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 the hands of his opponents because the hour has not come. But now the hour has come. The Son of Man is to be glorified. How? Look at verse 24. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruits. Verse 27, for this purpose, for this purpose, for that hour I've come. Father, glorify your name. Verse 32, when I lift it up, when I'm lifted up, I'm hoisted, metaphor for crucifixion. Jesus said, I will draw all people to myself. All those who belong to me from every nation, tribe, and tongue will come. And he said this, verse 33, to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the context is the death of the Jesus Christ. He was going to be hoisted up. He's going to be lifted up. He's going to be a grain of wheat that falls into the ground and dies. And he will get glory, he said, through his crucifixion, glorified by crucifixion. It is that context, including the Triumphal entry. It's that context that we come to our text. Very important that we see this because it doesn't say who is the son of man. It says who is this son of man. That's the question. Who is this son of man? Look at your Bibles, chapter 12. The end of verse 34. Who is this son of man? That's the question. That's the question for us today. Not who is the son of man. They had their expectations. They had their hopes. They understood the scripture. But who is this son of man? That's standing before them. Number one, he's the Lord, excuse me, he's the light of the world. Verse 34, the crowd after hearing this and waiting on this expectation and anticipation of a king and the crowd hearing Jesus talking about his death 
says, we have heard from the law, that's the Hebrew scriptures, that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man, the one you keep talking about being glorified through crucifixion, is going to be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? The question is born out of confusion. The question is born out of a conflict in their minds anyway. And confusion and, and kind of bringing prophecies together, their expectations together on the prophecies and expectation of what they expected. Just had the triumphal entry and they want the king of kings. And they remember the scriptures in Second Samuel's. God speaks to King David hundreds of years before and says, King David, listen, you're going to die. You're going to rest with your fathers. I will raise up, though, from you an offspring who will succeed you. will come from your body. He'll establish his kingdom. He will build a house for me. And then he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Isaiah speaks, too, of King Messiah, anointed one who will come. Isaiah 9, we read it at King Christmas. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, it is to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness, listen, from this time forth and forevermore. But the Christ is coming. The King of Kings is coming. He will establish his eternal kingdom forever. He's from the offspring of David. He will come and reign in an eternal kingdom. We get it. The title, Son of Man, you should have heard that before. It's a very well-known title for Jesus. In fact, it's, it's the one he uses most about himself. He calls himself the Son of Man more than anything else. John 1. I say to you, you'll see the heavens open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. John 3, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. John 6, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. John 5, all authorities to execute judgment has come. Why? Because I am the Son of Man. You get the point. The Son of Man is going to be the mediator Descending, ascending. He's going to be the judger. He's going to judge. He's the one who has eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Every place in John except one. There's an article in front of the Son of Man, and it points to a title that was given to Christ. If you don't know this, Please know this now, mark it in your Bibles. When Jesus, 99.9%, and we'll go to it, the other one in a minute, most of the time, there's an article that's pointing to the title. The title of the Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7. Mark that in your Bibles if you don't have it. Very important. Daniel, the prophet, comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days, which is God, and he is... The Son of Man is given dominion, you see it, glory and kingdom, that all people, nations, and language should serve Him or worship Him. His dominion is what? An everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, eternal kingdom. The Son of Man, Daniel, eternal kingdom. And in John chapter 5, verse 27, you don't have to turn it, I'll read it to you. It says, he has given him authority, that's the Father's given him authority, the Son of Man, to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That's without the article. And it points to the humanity of Christ. So what John teaches us is the title belonging to Jesus is everlasting, eternal king, but he's also the qualified, unique, human, perfect 
in every way, obeyed the law in every way, fulfilled the law in every way, and therefore, in his humanity, in his deity, he is qualified to execute judgment, to have this eternal kingdom. So why are we talking about his death? How could this Christ, the Son of Man, suffer? Who is he that he's being lifted up? How can the Messiah not last forever? Doesn't the Scriptures teach us that he has an eternal kingdom? That's the problem. David's son has a kingdom. Yes, the Christ will come. Yes, he will redeem and deliver and conquer the enemies of God. See, they were not asking who is the Son of Man as if they don't understand what he's claiming, but rather, what is this function of this Son of Man? What is this Son of Man that you're talking about? Jesus, Jesus is talking about a crucifixion. He's talking about being hung on a cross where, where criminals go, where, where, the, where the cursed are hung. I don't even understand. They were in darkness, that's why John tells us. They wanted a nationalistic king to reign and rule rather than deal with their individual sin that Jesus came to die for. Then that sounds familiar to mention the elections again, but I will. No matter what side, some are elated and some are disappointed. But what's shocking to me is those who have their hope in this world on either side. Our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is in the coming kingdom. The hope is in the reigning ruling of Christ. Be it as you wish what side you're on. But Christ came first to deal with your sin, not to be your nationalistic king, but a king who will come and establish his nation on earth. This is it. Family, this is it. Jesus is coming to his last appeal to the Jewish people. There's something very surreal about this. Heavy, I want you to feel it. His last public spoken words to the Jewish nation before he is to be crucified. Yes, he'll be in the upper room. We'll begin next week in John chapter 13. We're on a Good Friday, uh, excuse me, Thursday. Uh, he is getting ready to be crucified, but here is his last public appeal. And he reminds them, and he tells them, he will not be with them forever. He will not physically be with them forever. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while, for a little while longer. Light and darkness, very common in this gospel account. John opens up in chapter 1 with a prologue. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus said in John 8, I am the light of the world. John 3, the verdict is in. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than the light. Not men were in darkness, so that's true. Men loved darkness. Men and women loved darkness instead of light. Why? Their deeds were evil. They're done in dark. They're done in the dark. Light, of course, is the ancient image of God. David said in the psalm, for the, what, what did he say? Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and the Lord is my salvation. Jesus is the light of God. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the revelation of God, the objective reality of divine holiness, purity, and truth. And although light shines and light exposes the dark, in this statement, it's not judgment, but invitation. Look at verse 35. Walk. The light's coming. Look at it. It says, walk. It's among you for a little while. Walk. 
Why you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. Listen, daytime you walk, you move around. At nighttime, it's closed. It's dark. You can't really move. You're blind. You're lost. You have no idea where you're going. He says, I'm here now. Follow me. Trust me. Walk with me. It's a metaphor. I'm the light of the world. Obviously, you know, there was no street lights in those days. No headlights on cars. No, no, no lights along the road. If you traveled and it got dark and the sun went down, you stayed put. It was dark. Couldn't find your way. And that's Jesus' answer to their, what, what about the eternal kingdom? What about the promise of David? Trust me now. Follow me now. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing. I'm the king. I know how this is going to end. You're concerned about the eternal kingdom, and I am here. Follow me now. Don't stress out over the end. Trust me now. Some of you need to hear that right now. Trust me now, trust me today, trust me in the moment. Not, don't worry about tomorrow, it's got enough worries for itself. I don't know what's going on in your life, I don't know where you're at. I don't know how you see this world, where it's going. Trust me now, follow me now, I'm the light of the world now. Don't walk in darkness. In a few days I'm gone. And this was this narrow window that Jesus gives them. Because the, the door is closing, the light is going out, the opportunity is, is getting shorter to give up there this, this preconceived notion about the Messiah being a political savior and to start acting and looking and trusting in who he says he is. Family, we don't know how long we have. I'm not trying to frighten you. I'm just telling you the truth. There's shooting in Crossgates Mall yesterday. Verse 36, you have the light, believe in the light. Well, you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become what? Sons of light. What's interesting is the verbs in this, te- in this in that sentence, believe is, or NIV, put your trust in, is present tense, in the Greek means continuous action. You're, you're continually trusting, you're believing, constantly believing. But the word to become, sons of light, the word become, is aorist, and it points to a once and for all child of light. And I say that only to remind us that while faith is a pursuit to be practiced without ceasing, we do not become a son of God by degrees. Children become a child the moment one trusts and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're always growing in our faith. And some people, again, need to hear that this morning. The level of your faith may say many things about your spiritual maturity, but your spiritual maturity does not make you a child any more than your own children and their maturity makes them your children. I mentioned in the first service, you, you, you may have some kids you want to grow up, like you need to grow up, but it don't change who they are, right? They're still your kids. They're still your kids. So we, our call is a church to trust Christ. Have you? Do you love him? Do you trust him? Do you follow him? It's about Christ. He's the light of the world. Are we in the light? Are we behind him? We, are we walking in the light? He knows where he's going. Are we taking the step of faith and believe? Because once the light is out, there is darkness. And like a traveler completely lost in the night, there is danger, there is destruction. Are you walking in the light? Are you believing on the Lord Jesus Christ? And for me and for you, what does that really mean? God's mercy and grace will not last forever. You say, really? Yes. We will give an account. There is a place and a time in which we will stand and grace and mercy will not be offered to you. I I say this because I love you and I know God loves you. But there will come a time where you give an account and your salvation will be too late if you do not respond 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know how long we have. God is gracious. God is compassionate. God is loving. God is merciful. God desires that we come to repentance and faith in him. But there's a limit. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's a call to you. Look at verse 36. That's a scary verse. Verse 36 is a scary verse. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. That's not a chronological statement only. That's a theological statement, right? We don't know where he went, maybe Bethany, Mary, Mary, we don't know. But his departure, and we've seen this over and over in John, his departure symbolized the judicial judgment that was about to fall on Israel. He departed and he hid himself from them. That should scare you if you're not a Christian. We don't want God to depart and hide himself from us. We want him to be known. And John is in this prophetic drama. We're looking at this prophetic drama as, as John says, the light's going out. He hid himself. God loves you. Don't say no. If you hear his voice today, respond today. Because we don't know. And he's telling Israel, you reject me as a whole. I withdraw my life from you as well. He's not only the light of the world. Look, he's Lord of the universe. Verse 37 Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not un- believe in him. They still did not believe in him. Mark that in your Bible. Many signs were done. They were done in the open. They were done before everyone. He did not do his signs and wonders in a closet. Lazarus raised from the dead by seen by many people. Water turned into wine by many. He did his signs out in the open. And yet... John's making it clear that those who live in darkness, those who refuse to come to the light, whose hearts are hard, are personally responsible for not recognizing the signs. Remember, signs and miracles are signposts. They are significant, significant of who is doing the sign, and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the work that this, this, this unbelief was not a surprise. Not like, it's not like, Jesus, you go into the world and uh, no, not many people came to faith in Christ. You failed, Lord Jesus. Jesus, don't fail. So John wants to tell us and show us that this plan was of God. And he says, look at verse 38. Spoke about their unbelief so that the word spoken by the prophet, that was hundreds of years before, the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed that what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This unbelief of the Jewish people is a recurring theme. This, this, this prophecy is taken from Isaiah 53. It's a very well-known chapter. If you don't know it, turn to it later. Or maybe later today you could read it. it it's, it's a chapter with, that has great detail of the, uh, and description, detail and description of the substitutionary suffering atonement of Christ hundreds of years before Jesus comes to the earth. And the quote that John is quoting is from chapter 1. Chapter 1 of Isaiah 53, who has believed? The heard from us, that has heard from us. The answer is no one. They're not responding. They're not listening. That's, that's, that's what happened in Isaiah 53. And what's cool about that is John, who's a better Bible teacher than I am, knows the context. So, John, why would you use that context that they would not believe 
They would not trust the arm of the Lord, the power of God. Why? Well, Isaiah 53 tells us the next verse. He doesn't mention it here, but if you go to Isaiah 53, 53, you'll see. It says, he had no form. Why are they not believing? He had no form, that's Jesus. Or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He's not, he's nothing. I'm not impressed. He was despised, rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men, men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Oh, why didn't they believe? It wasn't what they wanted. It wasn't what they were looking for. It wasn't, it wasn't who they expected. See, the issue of Christ to them and to us is really not about our speculation. It's about revelation. It's about God unveiling himself to us, not putting our thoughts onto him or what we think God should look like. And we do it all the time. And what's surprising about this is we see even before we get into Romans, Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11, how the actual unbelief of Israel as the door is closing, the light is going out of Israel, that God will use that the closed door to open a door to the Gentiles. That's what Romans 9 to 11 is all about. That, that by their trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That the, um, the branches were broken off and we being a wild olive shoot was grafted in. And that we now, as Gentiles, have been brought in. And then John, uh, excuse me, Paul tells us, Roman, don't be arrogant about it. And he goes on to say, but even though Israel will be hardened, the Gentiles will be brought in. There will be a day, chapter 11, verse 26, where all of Israel will be saved. I take that to mean not every single Jew, but God will restore by faith in the Messiah a holy remnant of Jews at the second coming before the millennial reign of Christ. Some of you guys believe we're in the millennial reign right now. You're in Amil. If you don't know what I'm talking about, they do. That's cool. The second coming of Christ. But the point is, God used the unbelief for his glory and our salvation. God used their hardening of hearts and our now grafted in through that, Romans 9 through 11 again. Now, what's so interesting about this, look at verse 36. For those who would not believe, Isaiah 53.1, could not believe, verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. Would not, could not. For Isaiah again said, now we're in Isaiah chapter 6, quote from Isaiah 6. John says, for again Isaiah said, he's reaching back in the Old Testament. He has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. The prophet is brought into the throne room of God. He is broken over his sin when he sees the holiness of God. He is crushed. He repents. He is healed. He is forgiven. If you know the story, Isaiah 6. And then God commissions him and he says, here am I, send me. And God's like, I'm going to send you. But by the way, no one's listening to you. <laughs> no one's listening. You're going to be disregarded, disrespected, despised, and, and, and no one will listen but go. And God is said to harden their hearts. And Isaiah will actually, in chapter 63, come to the place of, of pleading with the Almighty God to have mercy on them. And the notion that God hardens, or the notion that God may judicially harden men and women, is frequent in the Scriptures and in the New Testament. But 
If one reads these verses, God hardens hearts and hardens and closes eyes and doesn't heal and takes it out of context or takes it out of the entire scripture context, there could be a problem. God could seem mean and vindictive and, and um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? He could seem uh, vindictive or, or, or robotic, cruel. So we don't want to do that. So Dr. Carson is a New Testament scholar, probably one of the best New Testament scholars walking today. Uh, he says, keep this context, keep this text in context of the Bible. And remember a couple of things. They were helpful. I'll share them with you quickly. Number one, when we read passages that God's hardening hearts, remember God's sovereignty, his right to reign and rule over his creation in these matters is never, he said, pitted against human responsibility. God's sovereignty is never pitted against human responsibility. What we find in Scripture is God's sovereign hand and man's responsibility side by side. Spurgeon talked about two railroad tracks running side by side. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Acts chapter 4, as we look at the, at the cross, as we look at the redemption of God's people, God makes it very clear. He says in Acts 4, For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus Lots of people. Herod, he says, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. That just covers everybody. To do whatever your hand, Father, and your plan has predestined to take place. The cross of Christ is the predetermined plan of God, yet man is responsible for crucifying the Lord of glory. And you say, well, I don't understand that. Me either. The Bible says that I believe it. And if you could understand all the things of God, you wouldn't be sitting in this room, you'd be in the throne room somewhere being worshipped. It doesn't mean we can't believe it. It means we don't completely understand it. God is sovereign over evil, and yet he's never responsible for it. Somebody, everybody needs as a Christian to have a category in your brain to say, all right, it's a mystery, and I'm okay with that. God is sovereign, man is responsible. That's what he's saying. Number two, God's judicial hardening, as we see here, is not the capricious or this fickle manipulation of an arbitrary sovereign God who looks down on morally good and wonderful people. But it's a holy condemnation of guilty people who are condemned to the judgment that they themselves have chosen. And the point that he makes, which the Bible is clear, is that even if you've got Pharaoh's heart, that's been hardened, or the Jews that have been hardened. It's not like these people were warming up and really wanting to love God and, and worship God and they're just morally good people and there's no sin. And God's like, oh, wait, 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 you, you've come a little bit too far. You're too holy for me, so I'm going to harden your heart. That doesn't happen. That does not happen. Rather, it begins with our guilt, our inability to choose God, and God intervenes graciously to open our hearts to see the truth and to embrace it. And as a result, the objects of God's gracious interventions are rescued. Does the Bible teach us that we can choose God, but that God singles out some and closes the minds of others, and, and therefore they're damned? No. The whole world choosing, loving darkness and running toward judgment. And God rescues some to himself. Jesus already said, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws me. You say, well, I don't understand. I know. Lots of examples in scriptures. So it's not, it's judgment 
and mercy. Number three, God's sovereignty in these matters is actually a cause of great hope. God's sovereignty in the moving on the hearts of people should cause us hope. And I'll tell you how. How many people, don't raise your hand, but how many people have been praying for a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, an aunt, an uncle, a, 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 a son, a daughter, a grandchild, praying, Lord, open their hearts. Please, Lord, show yourself to them. I pray for their salvation. If you ever said that prayer, you believe in the sovereignty of God, whether you believe it or not. Because otherwise you'd be like, Lord, let me say it just perfectly because I know it's totally about how I do it and what I say because I've got to do something to open up their heart. If you pray that prayer, we need to talk. Because you're not doing it. And if you ever led somebody to faith, the first thing you should know at that moment, you should look back and go, I did did nothing to do with that. I know I was the mouthpiece, but oh my word, Lord, you just gave that person life. Like I could never do that. That's the sovereignty of God. So we have hope. See, our unbelief is guilty unbelief. Man is responsible to believe on Jesus on the one hand and God's sovereign over those and everything he does. Both are true, whether we understand it or not. Because the Jews would not believe, God judicially blinded them so that they could not believe. They would not and could not. What makes this so unbelievable in, of this text, look at verse 41. He said these things because he saw Jesus, you can put that word in there. Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of Jesus. When did Isaiah see Jesus' glory? See at his glory and speak on these things. Well, we know, Isaiah chapter 6. It's on the screen. In the king, year the king died, Uzziah, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphims. Each had six wings. Two covered his face, two covered his feet, and two he flew. And one called to another as the Lord is seated on a throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. John says that was Jesus. That was the pre-incarnate Christ before he came to be a man. And it said that he is holy, holy, holy. He is transcendently above, separate, and morally pure and perfect. And the whole earth is full of Christ's glory. Weight, intrinsic value. Greatness, incalculable worth, preeminence, the glory of God. As, as the holiness of God goes public, we see his glory, his worth, his value above all things. And that, people, listen, God's glory, when we see his glory, we respond and we reflect back to him, his already glory, we ascribe him glory. That is the essence of worship. And that is why, that is why, because that's the essence of worship, that is why The underlying issue of unbelief is self-worship, self-glory. That's what verse 42 is all about. Look at verse 42. That's why John writes this. He says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So I care more about what other people say. I, don't, I think this is not real genuine faith. I think this is the spurious faith that John talks about, chapter 2, chapter 6, chapter 8. He said they believed it wasn't real because we know it wasn't real because they were afraid. They cared about others. Verse 43. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Jesus already said in his indictment in chapter 4, excuse me, 5, verse 43. I come in my Father's name, you don't receive me. If somebody else comes in his own name, him you'll receive. How can you believe, Jesus says 
in chapter 5. When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. If God is ultimately glorious, if God is, is intrinsically beautiful and glorious and great and supremely majestic, we ought to treat him that way. We need to stop glorifying self and to glorify God. Years ago, my wife and I, I don't know how long ago, we went to the Grand Canyon. I want to illustrate this for you. And we went to the Grand Canyon, and I don't know if you've ever been there, but let's just say you went to the Grand Canyon and you pulled up, and it was morning, it was fall, it was misty, and there was a cloud covering the canyon. And as you get out of the car, you really, I'm like, I, don't, I see clouds. But you get out and you walk, and you're walking along the path along the canyon, and as you're walking along the canyon, the path, all of a sudden, a cool wind blows, and the clouds just roll away. You were walking somewhat nonchalantly, and all of a sudden, the clouds blow away, and all of a sudden, as you're walking nonchalantly, you look down, and there's this giant, giant hole in the earth. What do you think would happen at that moment? <laughs> the drop, the sight will grip your heart. The magnitude and danger of the situation becomes a reality. What was once just a nonchalant walk has become very careful and very serious. Why? Because you didn't see its reality. The path should not have been treated so casually, but when the cloud lifted, you need to watch your step. You need to stay close. I would run you probably begin to treat the pathway and this hole in the ground with respect and honor. Imagine for a moment you have a set of dishes that your mom or your family gave, back, gave to you. And you don't know how old they are. They've just been handed down. And you've been using them for like kids' parties and cheese and crackers. And then a friend comes over with another friend who happens to be an expert in antiques. And he says, do you know what you have there? You're like, no. They're from an ancient dynasty. They're worth about $5 million for a full set. No more cheese and crackers. Right? No more cheese and crackers. Right? It's not hanging out in the hutch anymore, waiting like, no. <laughs> the clouds rolled away. You grasp the reality, the magnitude of what this was. You begin to act in accordance with it. You clear the house. You begin to give those dishes its due. You see how the plates of the Grand Canyon demands that you glorify it. The situation demands you give it its due according to the magnitude and reality of what it is. It's not like the plates or the Grand Canyon has an ego trip. The issue is when you give it glory, who benefits? The canyon or the dishes? No, you benefit. And God says, glorify me. That's what he makes his mission out to be. And it is our joy as we are wrapped in his glory. Some of you... Remember the day. You say, I believe in God. I believe he forgives. I believe he's a God of love. I believe all these things about God. But there was this one day, this one day when the cloud rolled away. One day when the cloud rolled away and I said to myself, God really does love me. God really forgives me of all my sins. I, I, I suddenly, you, you suddenly realize that I've never really given it that much honor. I've never really given it that much glory. I've been harboring racism or pride or unforgiveness or resentment and anger toward others. I work all day and I strive all day to bring myself glory. And I thought, if I really believe 
I don't deserve grace and love and forgiveness. Why would I be acting this way? And then I suddenly realize, I'm forgiven. I'm loved. He does love me. He does forgive me. The cross is all that I need. Everything necessary. What's happening? The cloud's rolling away. You begin to wake up to the beauty, the glory, the majesty, the adoration, the excellence, and the preeminence of Christ, the excellence of Jesus, and all that he has done, and you are what? Humbled. Therefore, James says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility brings grace. You don't just uh, acquiesce to it, but rather you begin at that point, to enjoy the truth of the gospel. You begin to savor the truth of the gospel. You begin to turn the appetite of your heart, begins to turn the palate of your soul, begins to turn over and over, enjoying the sweetness of Christ. All that he has done. You begin to say, I've never taken this thing seriously. I've never treated this with the weight it was due, but now the cloud is rolling. The beauty of Christ and the humility of man. I will not glory in myself, I will glory in the Lord. He is the light of the world, he is the Lord of the universe. His glory then becomes our pursuit, and things begin to change. Now, last, he's the love of the, the love. Look at the love of the Savior. These last words that we see together is a cry. And, and it's puzzled some theologians, if you notice in the, in the text, that in verse 43, um, 46b, Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself, then all of a sudden in verse 44, as Jesus is hiding and he hid himself, all of a sudden he's crying out. And a lot of theologians are like, ah, I don't know, why. where did that come from? Who is he talking to? What's the audience? Where is he? What time is it? We don't know. Some people think it happened maybe a day before or two before the uh, Thursday in which he had supper with his disciples. Some people think it happened earlier in the week. I happen to think it's probably happened earlier in the week, but I, it's interesting that when Jesus cries us out and John puts it there, by the way, we may not know when this happened, but we know it happens in the scripture. Jesus did say these things. It, but it's a, it's, it's a summary statement. It's a, a succinct summary statement of so much that Jesus has done already and said already, and now it comes to close. So I think John just inserted it there, but it, it's really, if you look at the text, it's really a, a warning it's the last warning. It's the last warning, the, the consequences of what unbelief will bring. So these last texts about warning, consequences of what unbelief will bring to you. And I say the love of the Savior because just like when you have a child, when you take that child down and you say, listen, this is the consequences. You do this, you get that. You love the child. You say those things because you want to explain to that child the consequences of their actions because you love them. And God loves you. And therefore, God in love will and wants to share with you the consequences of your actions. And my hope is that you heed these words. Look at number one. We'll go through these quickly. Number one, how much God loves you. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. There are many today that consider themselves spiritual. They, they think that they, they believe in God. They even maybe pray to him once in a while. Therefore, you know, everything is good. 
But Jesus has gone through great lengths in this gospel account, great lengths in this gospel account, to say that if you have the Son, you have the Father. You reject the Son, you reject the Father. You honor the Son, you honor the Father. You honor the Father, you honor the Son. You cannot reject the Son and honor the Father. It's that simple. It's a package deal. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him, John 5. You don't divide it up. You could be a an ardent believer of the Old Testament, whether you're Jewish or not, if that's all you believe and you don't come through the Son, you don't have the Son. Loving Christ means loving the Father. Receiving Christ means receiving the Father's. Knowing the Savior is knowing the Father. The consequence of trying to be spiritual or going any way you want to go is darkness. Jesus said, I am the way, singular, and exclusive. I am the way, the truth, singular and exclusive. And the life, singular and exclusive. No man comes to the Father but by me. It's the only way. Number two, and, and the consequence, by the way, is darkness. Number two, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me does not receive my words, has a judge. What is it? The word that I've spoken will be judged on that last day. Again, if you believe you're coming to God by your own understanding, your own intellect, not by the word of God, you're kidding yourself. You've rejected the Son. Many people think they have faith in God, yet reject the word of God. They go hand in hand. When you ask them what they believe, they'll give you their estimation, their own thoughts, their own understanding, their own ideas, and they reject the actual word of Christ, the word of Scripture. And by rejecting the word of God, now hear me, by rejecting the word of God, you're rejecting the person of God. By rejecting the word of God, you reject the person of God. Genesis 1 and 2, God said, don't do this. Don't eat of that tree. Adam and Eve, they rebelled. What happened? Consequence. Sin entered the world. They rebelled against the word of God. They refused to trust in the word spoken by them. We know Jesus. We know the Father. And we are redeemed and rescued from sin. We have eternal life through the words that Jesus spoke because they are the very words of God, the unique power to drive us, to give us himself through his word, divine power to bring Jesus to our hearts. The word I have spoken to your spirit in life, John 6. Lord, who do I go? You have words of eternal life, John 6, 68. If you reject my words, you reject me, not receive me, the word will be your judge. Family, listen. For 2,000 years, we have exactly what we need. The words of Jesus, the words of God. This is how we know him. This is how we receive him. This is how we have fellowship with him. The precious Christ through the precious word of God. Pursuing Jesus without the word is an act of rebellion and sin and pride. Sorry to have to say that, but it's true because I don't want you to reject Christ, but you have to receive him through, see the Father, through the Son, in the word of God. That's what he says. If you, if you don't receive my word, you reject me. And finally, the close, verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment. What to say, what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life, and what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The command that Jesus is talking about is simply to believe, to walk, to trust, to love, to yield, to worship the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, and be rescued and saved. He offers himself as a Savior. It is out of love that the Lord Jesus offers that command, speaks these words, gives you himself through his word because he loves you, and he calls us to repent of our sins. He is quite 
straightforward about this. A matter of unbelief is not optional. It, it will stand for you. It will stand, you will stand in judgment of it. Heed his word today. Heed his word today. Don't stand before God without the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing the Son, knowing the Father through the word of God. And let me end with this. Remember, 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 remember the cross. The darkness that shrouded the cross was God's judgment on his son for our sin. The rejection of the son of man is the one who cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was rejected. He was cast out. He was, God the Father turned his face from the son so that we can be brought in. That exactly what happened on the cross. Jesus get what your sins deserve and, and to grasp Grasp the glory, grasp the beauty of that truth will rip through the darkness of your heart, will rip through the hardness of your heart. If you see the infinite love of God, if you see Jesus taking your sin and losing for the moment the infinite relationship with the Father out of infinite love, it will melt the hardness of your hearts. I don't care where you've done or where you are. God loves you and you must see that the paradox of Christianity is Jesus' infinite darkness can destroy and dispel our darkness so that we can have forgiveness and light and life. The veil of your heart can be ripped and from top to bottom. The sin that separates you from a holy God can be removed when we respond by faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have access into the presence of God. See this morning his tenderness and love toward you. Let it melt your heart Let it melt in your heart and open your eyes. In Isaiah 53, we read it earlier, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's the gospel. It's the substitutionary work of Christ. That's the great message and news of the gospel. For we were separated subjects who are willing to turn from their rebellion or unwilling to turn, and yet God calls us to turn. It was Jesus, instead of crumbling in grief over our rejection, bears our grief. Instead of growing in sorrows, he carries our sorrows. Instead of relating against and retaliating against our transgressions, he is pierced for our transgressions in our place. Instead of crushing us for our iniquities, he was crushed as our substitutes. He took the sin and the darkness upon himself so that we can have light and life. Respond this morning. If you've never trusted Jesus, worship him in truth and in spirit and believe on him this morning. And if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, let this be an encouragement and strengthening of your faith. That he is the light of the world. He is Lord of the universe. And he loves you and died and rose again so that you can have life and light. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son the light of the world. We thank you, Father, that you have pierced through the darkness, through the work of your spirit, the death of your son, ultimately for your glory, that we may see your worth, your value, your majesty, your your greatness, Lord God. Thank you out of hearts of gratitude. Melt our hearts. Help us to love You, love one another, help us to walk in truth and in love and in grace. 
and help us to respond in a way that brings you glory because honestly, all we have is Christ and Christ is all we need.